Welcome to the BookNet Canada podcast. I'm your host, Selena Alvey, and this month we're talking about true crime, from recent bestsellers to evolutions of the genre. I hope you're somewhere warm and safe, because the next 30 minutes are all about murder, organized crime, and, well, more murder. True Crime as a Genre began more or less about 35 years ago, when Anne Rule published her book, The Stranger Beside Me, which is all about serial killer Ted Bundy, whom she knew personally before and after his arrest. Since then, hundreds if not thousands of true crime books have been published in Canada. As of today, there are about 5,000 ISBNs and BiblioShare categorized as true crime. Many of these are by Anne Rule herself, and you can still find classics like Truman Capote's In Cold Blood and Helter Skelter on lists of nationwide bestsellers. But while these American classics remain popular with Canadian readers, if you look at the top 10 best-selling true crime books of the last year, half of them were written by Canadian authors about true Canadian crimes. Two are about the death of Richard Oland and the trial of Dennis Oland. One is about a woman's marriage to a con man. The fourth is about outlaws and bike clubs. And the last is all about Canada's most infamous bootlegger. It's clear that Canadian true crime readers have an interest in true Canadian crimes. We sat down with Bobby Jean McKinnon to talk about her book, Shadow of Doubt, which follows the murder of East Coast multimillionaire Richard Oland, and why Canadian readers were so captivated by that trial. Uh, My name is Bobby Jean McKinnon. I'm a reporter and web editor for CBC based in St. John, New Brunswick. I'm from Ottawa originally and graduated from Carleton University School of Journalism and uh, worked at newspapers for many years, including the Ottawa Citizen, the Toronto Star, and Telegraph Journal. And uh, Shadow of Doubt, The Trial of Dennis Oland, is my first book. Uh, we actually we looked at the, the best-selling true crime books from the last year in the print market, according to sales data, and it was the number one book for that period of time. Um, so I, I'm assuming it was a fairly big trial. And my first question is, why do you think Canadians were so interested in this particular trial? And can you tell us a little bit about what it was actually about? Um, sure. Uh, so it's about the murder of multimillionaire Richard Oland in St. John, New Brunswick in 2011 and the trial of his son, Dennis Oland. Um, the Olands are a very prominent family in the Maritimes. They're the founders of Moosehead Breweries, the oldest independently owned brewery in Canada. And Richard Olin's bludgeon body was found lying face down in a pool of blood in his investment firm office on July 7, 2011. He suffered 45 blows to his head, neck, and hands, and his only son, Dennis Olin, was the last known person to see him alive during a visit to his office the night before. Um, About two years later, he was arrested, and about two years after that was the trial, and it was largely a circumstantial case. No murder weapon was ever found. Uh, The Crown's key piece of evidence against him was a blood-stained brown sports jacket, and the alleged motives were that Dennis Oland was more than $745,000 in debt and allegedly angry over his father's extramarital affair. And um, a jury found him guilty of second-degree murder on December 19, 2015, and he was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for at least 10 years. And um, it was really a divisive case. I mean, basically, there's three impassioned camps, those who firmly believe he's guilty, 
those who say he's innocent and those who think he's probably guilty but that it wasn't proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, I think part of that is that several problems with the police investigation came to light during the trial. Um, things like uh, the number of people in and out of the bloody crime scene, uh, there was evidence of officers using the washroom right outside the office for two days before it was forensically tested. Uh, the back door, which the defense argued would be the killer's preferred escape route, never being tested because someone had opened it and contaminated it. And uh, there were also allegations the deputy chief encouraged another officer not to reveal that the deputy chief had entered the crime scene. And that's sort of where the, the title comes from. At the beginning of the investigation, when the police chief announced Richard Olin's death was a homicide, he said, we do not want to make a mistake. We want to be able to prove this case without a shadow of doubt. But as I said, you know, public opinion remains divided. And so I think it's fair to say a, a shadow of doubt hangs over this case for a lot of people. But um, his family has stood by him from the beginning, maintaining his innocence. You know, it, it's been described as a family tragedy of Shakespearean proportions. Uh, the O.J. Simpson case of the Maritimes, crime of the century. I don't know, it's just really a, a tragic, fascinating story that's left a family and a city forever changed. And it's uh, really captivated people, not just in St. John, but right across Canada. There's still so many unanswered questions. A, a murder weapon was never found. What happened to it? Richard Olin's iPhone uh, was went missing and was presumably taken by whoever killed him, but it had been backed up in his computer and there was no incriminating evidence on it. And, you know, if not Dennis Olin, then who? The defense never really offered up another suspect. And, I, you know, I think it also raised the ugly issue of whether we have a two-tiered justice system, um, you know, that most people wouldn't be able to keep fighting uh, the way Dennis Oland has. Um, some estimates have put the defense costs at $5 million and counting. Uh, but then the flip side of that, of course, is that some people believe he was convicted because he's rich, that he was you know, somehow being punished by the jury and, and public opinion for that. Um, I think there's also a, a universality to stories about families and relationships. There's a certain voyeuristic appeal, I guess, for those fascinated by the rich and famous. Uh, maybe it makes them seem more like everyone else, more human, more fallible. And, and it also comes at a time when reality and entertainment shows like uh, Keeping Up with the Kardashians and crime dramas like CSI are really popular and when interest in productions like uh, the serial, um, or sorry, the podcast Serial and Netflix documentary Making a Murderer is exploding. It's just a, a real story with real people and, and real stakes. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound at all surprising that there was enough content and enough interest to publish a book about it, right? Uh, could you tell me a little bit about how that came to be? Where did the um, idea to actually publish a book about it come from? I have covered a lot of court cases over the years, but uh, this was like unlike any other I had ever covered. I, everywhere I went, it was all anyone wanted to talk about. Uh, during the trial, a lot of people asked me if I was going to write a book, but 
I was just so busy with the daily news reporting, I couldn't even think about it. I I was putting in, you know, 12, 14-hour days every day for about three months throughout the trial. And then after the trial, people seemed to want to talk about it even more. You know, I, I would be at a party or at the grocery store or, you know, it seemed like there was always someone who would come up to me and say, you were there for the whole thing. What do you think? And... You know, what I think doesn't really matter. Like the trial judge said, um, you know, only the opinions of the jurors really mattered. And as a reporter, I believe it's important to maintain objectivity. And this case is very much still ongoing, and I'm still covering it. Um, But I just felt that it needed to be more fully told. And I had a lot of additional information that didn't make it into my daily reports, you know, Uh, court sat for six or seven hours every day and radio reports are only about one minute and TV reports are only about two minutes. So you can only tell the story in broad brush strokes, just sort of touching on the highlights. So it was a chance to sort of use all that information to tell a more comprehensive story with the advantage of hindsight, you know, being able to look back and sort of connect all the dots. Um, if you or your listeners have ever sat through a trial before, you know that the lawyers don't always present the case in an easy-to-follow fashion, and you may not know exactly where they're going with something until their closing statements when they sort of tie it all together. And during the trial, you've also got you know witness one talking about issues A, B, and C, and witness two talking about X, Y, and Z, and so with the book, I was able to go back and say, okay, who talked about issue A, and what did they say? So I could sort of present it in a more coherent way and also write it in a different style with, with more color and and personal observations. It was also a chance to delve more into the, the family's history and promin- prominence and some of the relationships and dynamics. And, um, you know, it wasn't about trying to solve the case. It was just a chance to put all the information together in one place and empower readers to make their own informed opinions. I'd like to touch a little bit on the aftermath of the book. Uh, what was the reception like in the in those communities in New Brunswick where all of this actually happened? Well, uh, you know, I, I think it's taken a real toll in the community. Like I said, you know, uh, it left um, people very divided and it was a bit of a black eye as far as, um, you know, the police go. Uh, they faced a lot of scrutiny and, you know, I, I think a lot of people didn't want any more publicity um and so some were upset that I wrote it and some you know of the professional relationships I worked hard to build have been damaged I believe possibly beyond repair in some cases and it's a small city so you know I've run into people and it it can be awkward <laughs> when I see people involved with the case but you know I think both sides are are equally disgruntled about everything. So I guess that means I'm doing my job and being objective. I I hope they feel that I've presented the facts fairly. But it's actually really interesting because I've had some people tell me that they thought he was innocent and after reading my book, they think he's guilty and vice versa. They were sure he did it and now they're not so sure. So everyone seems to see something different in there. Another Canadian journalist who has turned his reporting into best-selling true crime books is Peter Edwards. 
A reporter for the Toronto Star, Peter focuses on organized crime and actually had his book, Business or Blood, adapted into a new miniseries on City TV. And the TV tie-in edition, retitled Bad Blood, has been the number one true crime book for the last couple of months. So how did you get into organized crime, or reporting on organized crime, I should say? Sort of a roundabout route. Like, I, I took history in university, and I always really liked looking at um, how, how society moves along. And it seems like a lot of the big topics were taken. And, um, like, you don't want to write the 5,000th book on, on Churchill. Or mm-hmm. you want something fresh. And with organized crime, it was um, obviously a big thing in Canada right from the fur trade on. And yet... Um, there hadn't been that much done on it, so that that was part of it. You could get um, good original research. Yeah, working at the paper, it was a chance to get an area that was just mine. Like when I went to the Toronto Star, it was um, you're tripping over the other reporters. There were, um, you know, dance reporters, eight police reporters, all sorts of reporters, and so you wanted one area that that you you could have as your own. So it was that. Then there was another part of it where. Um, uh, I couldn't stand covering the crime stories where it was like a five-year-old girl who was the victim or um, a grandmother or some something where the um, sort of what seems like a random, senseless, cruel act. So those ones would really stay with you. And the, the crimes that um, you felt a little more distant uh, from were the, the ones where it was too two criminals playing the same game and it was more of a tactical thing and they went into it with their eyes at least partly open. So those, those were the stories that I, are a little, I was a little more comfortable covering. And how did you get started actually publishing whole books on the topic? Did it, uh, was it serendipity? Did you pitch it? It was an idea where I just, I was trying to think of what, how do I really get started with this? And I thought, why not take the family that did the most for the longest time in organized crime and try and analyze why they did it. And I, uh, there's a, there was an excellent historian at um, University of Toronto, Michael Bliss. He did the same thing with conventional Canadian business. And so I thought, why don't I just do that with Ill- illegal business? Like, why don't I pick one, one crime um, empire, one crime network and really, really look at it over time. And, so I did that with Amasi family in Montreal that seemed to be the biggest in Canada. And um, doing that, other things flowed through it. So it was a really good jumping off point to to do a lot of other things. I've looked at the top-selling true crime books in over the last few years, the last year, the last few weeks, and your name always comes up. They're obviously very popular. Uh, what do you think it is about, I don't know, the topic or these particular books, organized crime, that resonates with Canadian readers? I think people are wondering what would it be, what would it be like if I went outside of the rules, you know, instead of doing my um, normal job, working normal hours, following normal rules. What if I went outside and just followed what I wanted to do? How would I be happier? Would I be richer? Where would that lead me? I think there's that. I think there's also uh, people wonder are they that much different than me? And um, I've been fortunate to talk to a lot of people who were involved in this sort of life, and so. I, I think part of the attraction is people are comparing their lives to these lives and trying to, um, even criminals, a lot of them think they have sort of boring lives or ordinary lives. And so really? it's interesting just as a contrast, about 20 minutes, I'm going to see a guy who was in the Hells Angels, who um, a lot of his childhood was very, very ordinary. Wow. Okay. Interesting. I was going to ask, is this a very 
dangerous career path? Is <laughs> do people worry about you at home? Um, yeah, people worry, and I mean, I I worry too, but I worry a lot about cholesterol. I worry about bad drivers. I worry about tax bills. With with a lot of this, I can control the um, the exposure and um, who I'm who I'm dealing with. I'm starting a book now with a with a Mexican journalist who. Um, I mean, he has real things to worry about, like really significant um, threats. He he's had a loaded gun pointed at him five times. He's um, he was driven from his country. I mean, it's it's not realistic for me to compare any threat level I have to what he has. We were previously discussing on the podcast just the kind of recent um, increased interest in true crime. So we were talking about serial, obviously. Uh, coming out in 2014, it was a very popular podcast. We've seen Making a Murderer on television. One of your books is getting turned into a miniseries on City TV. It's Bad Blood. So, I mean, have you seen personally just an increased interest from people in Canada in true crime? Do you think it's just a hot topic right now? Um, it always seems to. It never seems to really wane, though. Like it, it always seems to to hang in there. Um, there always seems to be something going on, and and. Part of it, I think, is that when, when it seems to have died down, something will happen in someone's neighborhood that they just don't expect it to have happened. I mean, someone was um, shot to death in a really significant organized crime killing in front of George Brown College in downtown Toronto. And so uh, that one got a lot of interest. There'll be something that'll happen where people just, um, it, it makes them jump a bit because you like to think that you control how safe your neighborhood is and how safe your life is, and yet people, average people pass through these places and people who do these things all the time. It's not its not something that's taking part in a separate community far, far away. This is something tied into mainstream society. Yeah, I was looking at um, the top-selling true crime books uh, over the last, well, regardless of which time period I was looking at, and it's very much focused on Canadian titles. Like, it's more so than it seems in other categories, which is interesting. People seem like, yeah, they actually care about the crimes and uh, criminal um, criminals in their actual communities that they that they have a personal connection to. Yeah, like someone who, um, a reader who just moved to Hamilton asked me um, what's going on in Hamilton, and I gave him a couple addresses of, you know, this is where this happened, this is where that happened, and I think it's it's um, it's just an interesting interesting to have as a reference point when people find out that where they get their bread or where they get their favorite sandwich is a place run by an organized criminal that generally gets their interest. People are always jarred that it, that this isn't an American thing or this isn't from somewhere else. So I, I think that's that's part of the interest too. Like with with the Bad Blood TV series, the um, the idea that Canadians are in there functioning with Americans and actually doing quite well um, in that world, um, that, um, I think that pulls in interest. But while murder and organized crime have long been go-to subjects for the true crime genre, the last few years have seen some interesting trends arise, both in books and in wider popular culture. Joining me on the podcast to further discuss the evolution of the true crime genre is BookNet project manager and lover of true crime, Monique Mojan. Monique, thank you for joining us on this month's podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk about murder with one of my favorite colleagues. <laughs> and your favorite subject. Yeah. That's why I understand that you just, you're obsessed with murder, right? Um, like, I mean, I would not maybe put it that way. I don't, I don't do murder myself. Um, <laughs> nor, nor on 
higher from anyone else. Um, but I'm, I've always been really interested in, in crime shows and obviously this sort of true crime renaissance that happened, um, especially in, in podcasts and books, has really um, caught my interest. And, mm -hmm. and I can't, like most people, I think if you, once you're in, you're in, you're addicted. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no shortage. No, absolutely. Right? And, and it seems like there's, a, there's always more. There's always mm -hmm. more information. Um, you can always do more digging on the cases you're reading about um, online or, or in any other medium. So mm -hmm. there's lots of interesting stuff to talk about around true crime, aside yes. from the crime itself. Exactly. And so would you say it, it, the renaissance you mentioned, it started with serial? I think so. I think that was maybe kind of unexpected for, mm -hmm. for a podcast of that nature, especially like a public radio podcast. Like it seems so nerdy and, and it really blew up and people got so addicted to it. And it was interesting too, to then see that spin out into other true crime mediums that, that maybe um, like Investigation Discovery, there's this huge article in the New York Times about how Investigation Discovery, which is like a 24 hour true crime cable network is like the, like they have over 100 million viewers in over 157 countries. Whoa. And, and that started before Serial, but it sort of shows that there was like this sort of growing market and then Serial just jumped in mm -hmm. and kind of brought this whole other side to it that mm -hmm. I think time called Investigation Discovery's programming kind of soap opera-y and a little bit, um, I don't want to say trashy, they didn't use that word, but they gave it kind of like this guilty pleasure aspect that I think serial kind of turned it around and made it seem very serious and mm -hmm. journalistic and and presented in a sort of the the kind of this American lifestyle where it's very um, I don't know just very like very well packaged in a way that's very different from the way true crime was packaged before mm -hmm. and whereas it was something you watch as sort of like an escapist as you said guilty pleasure on Saturday night now it's like water cooler talk, discussing your theories and debating and exchanging facts online now, right? Absolutely. And, and there's this, you pointed out this Slate article we were talking about um, the other day around the office that, that, there, that transition into a more literary space for true crime seems to kind of mirror what happened with Investigation Discovery and then moving into Serial and these other explorations of true crime where they're all being taken a bit more seriously now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's really interesting to mm -hmm. see, see this genre kind of mature. But do you think it's mostly in, like there's Serial and the like million true crime podcasts that have come out since, and the TV series, there's Making a Murderer, which is like the next year, um, Mindhunter is just coming out now. Um, like, so those were the big blockbusters, but there has there been anything really in the book sphere that you can think of? Um, there's a few, there's a local book about, um, I can't think of the name of the book right now, um, about Jennifer Pan, which the book started out as a story in Toronto life. I don't know if maybe I've just heard about it a lot because it happened here in Toronto, which is where mm -hmm. I live. And, and so it's a case most of us had heard about while it was happening. Um, but yeah, it's hard to see. And when we look at the list of best-selling true crime books over the last few years, it does seem like there's still a lot of what we would call maybe the classics or the perennial mm -hmm. sellers in the true crime genre and not as many of the newer titles. Yeah, I mean, if anything, the new trend seems to be somewhat outside of the regular box of true crime books. And as you mentioned, the Slate article that talked about um, the new literary type of true crime books, many of those seem to be almost straight up memoirs. 
Like there are the yeah. true crime memoir and they're falling more or less under biographies or autobiographies. Yeah, and you see that um, in in the way they're categorized too using Bizac subjects is that some of them are just being categorized as memoir and not categorized in nonfiction true crime or any of the subcategories of true crime that exist in the Bizac code list. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, do we want to talk maybe about some of those? Yes, yeah, let's yeah. jump in. All right. Exciting let's world of subjects. Dive into subjects. Um, so yeah, there's true crime general. Um, and then there's a bunch of different, the subjects for true crime really do kind of break things out based on the type of crime, mm-hmm. not necessarily about the sort of perspective of the book or the outcome of the crime. So there's abductions, kidnapping, missing persons, con artists, hoaxes and deceptions, espionage, forensics, heists and robberies, murder general, murder mass murder, and murder serial killers, organized crime, sexual assault, and white collar crime. So those are, that's the list. It's quite a big list. A bunch of those categories are actually new from the 2017 edition, which is interesting because it's showing that there's more of an appetite for books in those areas. Because to get a subject added to the BISAC list, you have to prove that there's there's interest and growing interest in books in that category. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting to see the newest categories are the abductions, kidnappings, missing persons, heists and robberies, and mass murder and sexual assault. All new for 2017. And forensics. And forensics. Yes. Yes. I believe so. Yeah, the CSI effect, maybe. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we looked at also um, the the keywords that were being applied to true crime books, the one uh, titles that are listed in BiblioShare under that category. And forensics and, uh, I think, forensic science were, like, on, in the top 10 uh, keywords being used on those titles. So it definitely seems like that's an area that will be booming in popularity, perhaps. Definitely worthy of a new Bizet. Yeah, book. absolutely. Especially once you sort out crime as a keyword, which is obviously a keyword in a true crime book. But mm-hmm. once you get into the things that are kind of the types of things you would use a subject category for, you are seeing those represented in the keywords. Do you think there's anything missing still? Um, from the Bizac yeah. subjects? Yeah, I think um, there's some interesting things you could do. If you compare it to Thema, for example, which is another subject category system, Thema breaks up true crime into two distinct areas. And the way Thema works is that there's a base code that then you add additional. It's additive, so you're constantly adding modifiers to the existing code. So in Thema, there's true crime, which is biography, literature, and literary studies, biography and nonfiction prose, true stories general slash true crime. Uh, so it gets so, more and more granular. Yeah, more and more granular. So you're starting, like the base of the true crime Thema subject is biography, literary, literature, and literary studies, hmm. which kind of gives it this weight in terms of its seriousness that I think has not been associated with true crime for a really long time when it was kind of your like trashy, like guilty pleasure investigation discovery type soap opera-y thing. Whereas the other subject category and thema for true crime, there's only these two, is all of the same sort of top level categories. But then when you get to true stories, it becomes true stories of survival, of abuse and injustice. Mm -hmm. So Thema's interest in true crime is really kind of about the crime or about the survivor or victim of the crime and the justice system aspect. So it's very different from the way Bizak looks at true crime, which is categorizing it based on the type of crime. Mm -hmm. And it's 
when we think to that Slate article again and how many of those memoirs are about victims of crime or centered around the victim or survivor's experience of crime, it seems like that's an area where the subject category needs to grow because those are two very different types of book. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems, I mean, the way Bizac is organized, it's hard to, you're either kind of under nonfiction true crime or you're under biography and autobiography. And there, the subcategories under there, there's uh, criminals and outlaws, and then there's um, personal memoirs. Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard to kind of get across that it's a combination of those things, I guess. Yeah, and if you, for example, were wanted to publish a book about an exonerated criminal mm -hmm. or a wrongfully convicted person, you probably wouldn't want to categorize it under criminals and outlaws mm -hmm. because you're making a statement about that person that I would imagine they would not want you to make. Um, and similarly with, with victims and survivors of crime, there's no category for them in BIZAC that encompasses that experience. So it would have to be just a personal memoir, which is not exactly the narrative that you're telling, or it's maybe not the most granular way of expressing that. Mm -hmm. So it seems like the room to evolve the category is in the stories of, like survivor stories, personal memoirs, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interest in that. I think, um, especially when you see like abductions, kidnappings, and missing persons, um, there were a lot of memoirs of survivors of those types of crimes published in the last couple of years, which I imagine is why the category was added mm -hmm. to Bizac. Um, but there, there's nothing more granular to say that it's about the survivors more than it's about the person who committed the crime. Um, and those are, again, two very different types of narratives, and you might want to make that easier for people to discover the type of that story they want to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I looked at the, the top-selling memoirs for the last 13 weeks, and like, there's just a whole bunch of titlers. The Glass Castle, Ren Hide Repeat, Missing Mother, A Beautiful Terrible Thing, A House in the Sky, that are all at least true crime adjacent. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know, there hasn't been a discernible real, you know, sales spike in the true crime category in the last few years, but if you look at the biography category and the, just the biography bestseller list, I mean, so many of those titles are these types of books. Absolutely, and so it would be interesting to, to if we could get a list of every crime and crime adjacent true crime type book to see if there's a growth in that area that might be more telling than what we're seeing necessarily with just the true crime Bizacs. It's also interesting to note that many of these books, particularly the true crime memoirs, are written by and about women. Have you noticed that? Yes, yeah. I actually I have so many feelings about women and true crime as a woman lover of true crime. Yeah, it's really interesting because the, that Slate article, which I feel like we've talked about a lot so far, but it is so interesting and such mm -hmm. an interesting exploration of sort of true crime and books, um, is that the closer true crime kind of started to slide into memoir compared to how it used to be, which was a more sort of commercial and investigative journalism approach, is that when it got closer to memoir, more women were writing those stories. And it was kind of like for and about women. Um, so it was really interesting, this like female-authored true crime narrative that was for women. And there's a lot of interesting studies and articles about women in true crime specifically. Yeah, so do we want to get into it? Yes. Okay. Please. What do those articles say? I mean, what is the connect? Like, why? Why are there? So, why is it so women focused? Yeah, it's, driven? it's interesting because there's a few kind of main prevailing theories. So one of them is that it is a a sort of cathartic narrative of crime where the perpetrator is held accountable. So you go on this kind of like 
journey with the narrator of the story where the crime is experienced and you get this like hit of adrenaline, you're excited, you're scared, it's terrifying, you're thrilled, there's suspense. And then when you go through the sort of back end, the justice part of it is that you eventually do see the perpetrator punished for their crime in some way. And that because women are so often the victims of crime or feel a fear that they may become a victim of a crime, they find that kind of like comforting in a way to see a sort of black and white depiction of crime and then punishment in the same way that a lot of women, I think, are interested in shows like CSI and Law and & Order and all of those shows that I definitely watched as I was like a young woman growing into an adult. Um, because there is this sort of sense that like you go on this horrifying journey and then all is right in the end and that there's a sort of comfort in that. Um, and then there was an interesting piece by Sachi Cole on BuzzFeed um, called Being Polite Often Gets Women Killed, where she actually recounts a situation where a listener of a true crime podcast called My Favorite Murder actually rescued another woman who was also a listener of My Favorite Murder. Um, she spotted a man hunched behind this woman's car in a parking lot, and they actually approached him together, and he ran away. And at the end, they sort of talked about how their, their listening of that podcast and kind of thinking about crime and being sort of constantly immersed in this culture of learning about crime made them feel more prepared to prevent it from happening to them. Wow. Yeah, it's so interesting. Georgia, one of the hosts of My Favorite Murder, actually says, like, we want to know all about it so it'll never happen to us. Yes, that makes sense. Where do you think the, the ones more about um, perversions of justice or the justice system failing or ones where uh, the wrong person's been convicted, like, you know, well, that's debatable with serial. <laughs> I suppose I shouldn't make a blatant <laughs> Yeah, we still don't know, Zelina. Well, I feel like I know, but yeah. <laughs> uh, or like making a murderer right. as a better yeah. example. I mean, do you think that fits into it in some way? I don't think it does. Um, I think that those types of stories definitely kind of subvert that, that sense of it being comforting because you see it all tied up in the end and everything ends in, in a sort of like satisfying, you feel the sense of justice upon you kind of way. Um, but I think those stories are um, much more interesting to people from that like survival aspect. Like they want to know, how do they do it? Why do they do it? What do I need to be looking for? How can I protect myself? Um, and it's really interesting um, because there was a study, it's by Amanda Vickery and R. Chris Friley, and we can link to it in the notes for the show. But um, it actually suggests that 70% of women readers prefer true crime books that offer psychological insights and survival techniques. Not necessarily that at the end of the book there's a chapter that says, like, this is how you could survive this type of crime. Um, there could be. <laughs> there could be. I, would, I mean, that would be an interesting option. But I think it's, it's when they, they feel that they're learning something about the signs to look out for, about how they could protect themselves, um, that, that really appeals to them. And the study that Vickery and Fraley did was that they took a couple different books and then they wrote copy for them that suggested what was going to be in the book and so one of the books was a kind of more like violent investigative journalism type and the other was more of a psychological exploration of like the story of the crime and the story of the survival of the crime that kind of thing and then they 
offered those two books to different to readers and then looked to see which ones the women chose and by and large they chose the one that offered the sort of survival and psychological aspects that was really interesting and the full study is available to read online so mm -hmm. I highly recommend people check it out it's super interesting I don't know it's very it's kind of upsetting when I think about that true crime is sort of taking this like fear a lot of women have about their sense of safety in their life and and I don't want to say exploiting it, but it's feeding into it. There were a lot of the articles that talked about the sort of like binge watching and how mm -hmm. like you get into it and you get into it, but then you get really afraid. Or providing an outlet for something that is other times more buried. Yeah, there was, there was an interesting piece on the hairpin where um, they talked about how maybe it's women's interest in true crime is like a revenge fantasy um, and how it lets women express these sort of like darker and more violent feelings that normally culturally they're not allowed to express. That was really interesting as well. Um, and they did a, some brief parallels to different reality television shows and the ways that you can see um, that sort of aggressiveness and like blasé sort of jokes about murder mm -hmm. in, that, in that aspect and how that might be related. Yeah, I mean, it fulfills all of those things. I mean, you could look at just thrillers or horror, perhaps, for some of those purposes and outlets, but true crime seems to be the full package. Absolutely. I think there's so much in that it's like a real person's story, and I think because when you circle back around to that, more women are writing these memoir-type true crime novels, it's so much more relatable to women reading it than maybe reading a horror novel or something fictional, um, because it's a real person, and it's in their voice, and they can... They feel like they're getting like it's sort of an inside scoop, almost like they're vicariously experiencing the crime. And that way they can like learn from that person's experience and move forward. It's really, I don't know, it's interesting and upsetting. And um, like I hate to think that people are, are kind of like being, being dragged into this like sense of anxiety about their personal safety. But I think a lot of people do relate to that feeling. I remember I read a lot of true crime books at a job I had, we, I read like a bunch of them all in one week. And I remember going home to my apartment, it was the winter, so it gets dark early. And every time I was going into my apartment, I'm like, I'm gonna get killed, this is the day, it's gonna be over. Um, but it was because I'd been like binging on all this crime yeah. content and you get this sense that like everyone you don't know might kill you. Although isn't it mostly people you do know? It's true, it is, sadly. Um, and that's the kind of, I think that's the kind of interesting when you look at podcasts like My Favorite Murder, um, where they take a more, like, I don't want to say comedic, but a more lighthearted and jokey tone about some of the content where that sort of, like, their catchphrase, like, stay sexy, don't get murdered. Like, it sounds like something you might, like, kind of jokingly yell to your friend as you're, like, parting ways to get on the streetcar. But there's so much behind that when you think about the stories that in Sachi's piece she talks about um, seeing, like, posting on the group and asking people to talk about how the podcast resonated with them and what what true crime makes them feel. And it was a lot about empowerment and feeling like they're more able to take on a criminal should they ever be faced by one. Wow, so true crime is replacing the self-defense class, is what you're telling me. I mean, I think for a lot of people it is. Mm -hmm. It's like sort of infotainment. Mm -hmm. I hate that word so much, but it does seem a lot like people are really trying to, to learn something from this content. And it may not be being prepared to be that, but it is serving that purpose.
Mm-hmm. And in the cases of a lot of those really, you know, well-written literary true crime memoirs, it's also just a really great story. Absolutely. There's some really compelling stories. I think people in novels of all kinds have always been drawn to darker human stories or secret stories. There's this sense of kind of voyeurism, of getting to see a side of humanity you don't get to access in your normal life. And, and I think there are definitely people who are into true crime for that as well. All sales figures are from BNC Sales Data, the national sales tracking service for print, English language books in Canada. Thanks to Bobby Jean, Peter, and Monique for joining me on this month's podcast. If you'd like to check out a few more stats on true crime or learn more about what we do, you can visit our blog at booknetcanada.ca. We'll also post a full list of all of the links to the articles that we talked about today. We gratefully acknowledge the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Canada Book Fund for this project. And of course, thanks to you for listening.